Let's open our Bibles again this morning to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews 4, as we continue to look at our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, one of the saddest passages in Scripture can be found in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have just fallen into sin for the first time. Their heads are no doubt spinning as they begun to understand more and more clearly just how devastating their mistake had been. After hearing the consequences of their actions spoken to them by God himself, they are then physically cast out of the beautiful garden which had been especially prepared for them by the hand of God, a garden that was lush with endless beauty and provision for the body. They wanted for nothing in the garden. But there was another precious commodity that they enjoyed in the garden, and it was beyond the beautiful views and the delicious fruits It was the daily physical presence of God himself. Since their creation, they had only ever known perfect, free, and open access to God, their maker. He made a habit of walking in the garden with them, and they knew the privilege of perfect fellowship. But now, in what must have felt like an avalanche of consequences, they find themselves standing outside the garden, barred from entry. A powerful angel They're standing guard so that no one would pass. And as they stood there staring back into that garden that had been their perfect home, now reeling under the consequences of their sin, that they had to have had a gut-riching realization that everything has changed. No more afternoon walks in the cool of the garden. Though God's grace had been extended to them and he had covered their nakedness and their shame, The intimacy that they once had shared with him now was forever changed. And so mankind continued in that state of of relationship with God in which there was distance and strain and brokenness because of sin. But even then, there was a ray of hope. There was a refuge in the storm, a lighthouse revealing the way back to a right relationship with God. In Genesis 3.15, right in the middle of the consequences he's giving to them, he says these famous words, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. These words spoken to the great deceiver, Satan himself. Even as God is giving out the consequences that Adam and Eve would experience and that would go against Satan, he gives this ray of hope that one would be born one day through the line of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent, who would destroy the enemy, and who would bring reconciliation to God. But how would this promised Redeemer change our relationship with God? How would he be able to bring us back into intimate fellowship with our maker. Well, it's in our text this morning that the author of Hebrews sets his gaze on that all-important question. And what we'll find is that this promised Redeemer has given to us not only salvation, but he has restored the intimacy of fellowship with God. Remember, the theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. We've been looking at all the different ways that he is superior. We started in chapter 1 with the fact that he's superior to the prophets. Then he was superior to the angels. We were warned there in chapter 2 not to neglect the gospel. We've looked at the fact that Jesus is superior to Moses and been warned to beware of hard-hearted unbelief. 
But last week, we entered into chapter 4, verse 14, a new section that will run all the way to chapter 7, verse 28. And throughout this entire section, as we discovered already last week, the theme is the superiority of Jesus to the priesthood. And in these opening verses to this extended section, in verses 14 to 16, he gives us the application. He begins with the application and the encouragement that he intends for us to take from these truths. And then over the next several chapters, he will explain why he's so confident in the realities that he proclaims. Let's read our text together. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Throughout this section, we'll see the great idea that as our great high priest, Christ secures our salvation and supplies our strength. We saw last week that there are two reactions that the author intends for us to have to the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. The first reaction was in verses 14 to 15. We're to hold fast to faith. Hold fast to faith. And he encouraged us to that end with three descriptions about Christ his location, his humanity, and his divinity. We learn that Christ has done the unthinkable. He has, unlike the Old Testament priest, he's passed into the heavens. He ministers at the very right hand of God on our behalf. Not only is he superior in that sense, but he's superior because he he is the God-man, truly God and truly man in one person. And so he represents us there at the right hand of the Father, as the most supreme being of all. We saw two reasons why we should be motivated to hold fast to our faith, because of his identification with our weaknesses and his accomplishment of a perfect life. We saw last week that, amazingly, it says that Christ sympathizes with our weaknesses, including the weakness of temptation. Jesus Christ experienced real temptation in its full intensity, and yet without ever committing a single sin. And so he is the source of our salvation, but also the strength of our sanctification. Because that word sympathize, remember, means not only that Jesus has identified with our weakness experientially, but that he is committed to helping us in our weakness. He sympathizes, and therefore he offers us help in our weakness and our temptation to sin. We studied verses 14 to 15, but that left us with the question of how. How is it that we practically benefit from this help? How do we access this sympathetic help that Christ offers to us? And it is to that question we now turn our attention in verse 16. And a second reaction that we ought to have to the priestly ministry of Christ. Not only should we hold fast to faith, but we should draw near in prayer. Draw near in prayer. Verse 16 begins, Therefore, let us draw near. Let us draw near. 
He's explained the high priesthood of Christ and that we ought to respond appropriately by holding on to our faith. But that's not all. The, the great high priest and his ministry ought to propel us to run to him in prayer. This admonition to draw near in context ought to be incredibly moving for us. Because it comes to us in the midst of this discussion of the priesthood of Christ. And all of the, the Old Testament uh, background that stands behind that concept. As we said, since the fall, when Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden, the experience of mankind's relationship with God has been one of distance, of brokenness. God has always been gracious and merciful. He was gracious and merciful in the Old Testament. He's gracious and merciful in the New. But under the Old Covenant, God chose to highlight His holiness and our sinfulness by putting up physical barriers or, or visible restrictions about who could and could not come near him. And because God highlighted his holiness and our sinfulness in this way, there was this sense of a, an excruciating awareness that we needed to be made right with God, but we were incapable in and of ourselves to do that. That was staring the people in the face. You are a sinner who must be made right with God, and yet you are distanced from God. You cannot draw near to his presence. Only the high priest, as we said last week, only the high priest on the Day of Atonement was allowed on that day only to enter into the Holy of Holies, where the mercy seat was, as a representative for the people and offer the sacrifice for atonement. All the people needed to draw near to God for forgiveness, but only one was allowed. This prescription goes all the way back to the time before the temple was even built in the wilderness. This was set in place in Numbers 18. In Numbers 18, verses 1 to 7, we read this. So the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's household with you shall bear the guilt in connection with the sanctuary, and you and your sons with you shall bear the guilt in connection with your priesthood. But bring with you also your brothers, the tribe of Levi, the tribe of your father, that they may be joined with you and serve you while you and your sons with you are before the tent of the testimony. And they shall thus attend to your obligation and the obligation of all the tent. But they shall not come near to the furnishings of the sanctuary and the altar, or both they and you will die. They shall be joined with you and attend to the obligations of the tent of meeting for all the service of the tent, but an outsider may not come near you. So you shall attend to the obligations of the sanctuary and the obligations of the altar, so that there will no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel. Behold, I myself have taken your fellow Levites from among the sons of Israel. They are a gift to you, dedicated to the Lord, to perform the service of the tent of meeting." But you and your sons with you shall attend to your priesthood for everything concerning the altar and inside the veil, and you are to perform the service. I'm giving you the priesthood as a bestowed service, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. I read that entire section because I think it's, under, it's important to understand the stark contrast between what the worship of God in, at that time under the Old Covenant must have looked like compared to now. God speaking to Aaron and saying that Aaron, the high priest, and his sons are, are those who are to come closest to God, only, only Aaron entering past the veil. And he gives to him the whole tribe of Levi to assist them, but, but they're not to go near God. And anyone else outside that tribe that comes close to those things is to be put to death. 
This is the seriousness with which the worship of God was taken. This was the the sense of of awe and and trembling that the people would have had at the thought of drawing near to God. Understand this concept when the author says here in Hebrews, draw near to God. That would have been a terrifying idea under the old covenant. What do you mean draw near to God? I'm not the high priest. I'm not even from the tribe of Levi. How can I draw near to God? But that's what makes these words so special. Because the author of Hebrews says to you and I, draw near. Draw near. And he says that because this admonition is based upon the the priestly ministry of Christ who stands at the right hand of God. who has He is the great high priest, not entering into a temple behind the veil or a sanctuary in the wilderness, but entering into heaven itself, having made satisfaction for sins once for all, so that we now through him are invited to draw near. He accomplished this by first drawing near to us as the great Emmanuel, God with us, so that he might then bring us to the Father. This is 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. William Lane describes this reality in this way. He says, in a bold extension of the language of worship, the writer calls the community to recognize that through his high priestly ministry, Christ has achieved for them what Israel never enjoyed, namely, immediate access to God and the freedom to draw near to him continually. You understand the immense privilege that's wrapped up in this verse. The author's highlighting the fact that Jesus Christ has purchased for us free and continual access to the Father so that no other human mediator on earth is now needed. Our mediator stands at God's right hand. And so we are invited to come, to draw near to him. That invitation, of course, includes the offer eventually to be physically in his presence, and we long for that day in glory, but, but he doesn't tell us that we have to wait for that privilege until then, though we'll have that privilege physically then. Notice he says we're to do this now. Therefore, let us draw near. It's in the present tense. Right now, the idea is spiritually let us draw near to God in the way that he's given us through prayer. Remember the present tense in the Greek language is most often used to identify this continual action. And that's the idea here. We as believers are to continually, regularly, as a pattern of life, be drawing near to God. And don't forget the context of what we've already studied because that stands directly behind this admonition. The authors just described that our high priest is one who has experienced what it is to live under human weakness and has experienced temptation that comes with that weakness and he stands sympathetic, ready to help. So this call to draw near to God is a call to access the help that's offered by Christ through the means of prayer. This is how we get that help. We run to him in prayer. When you're weighed down under the weight of human weakness and temptation, Christian, The response is to immediately and continually 
draw near to God through Christ. Call upon him for this help that he so freely offers. Help intended to strengthen your faith so that you can stand even when you feel crushed by the weight of trial and temptation. You know, those of us who have come to understand the sovereignty of God in all things and who greatly appreciate what we call Reformed theology can sometimes be confused when we try to reconcile the concept of God's sovereignty with calls to do things like pray and evangelize. And it's because our desire to logically piece these things together often gets in the way of the simple simplicity of what the Scripture says. Understand that in the mind of God, there is absolutely no contradiction between the truth that he has sovereignly ordained all that will come to pass and he calls us to pray and evangelize, but that's a different message. He calls us to pray even though he has ordained the end from the beginning. Why is that? How can we reconcile that? Well, just quickly, by understanding that in his sovereignty, it extends so far, it is so vast that God has sovereignly ordained not only the end of all things, but the means by which he will accomplish that end. He's accomplished every detail along the way of how that will come to pass. And one of the ways that God accomplishes his ends is through responding to his people's prayer. Even those responses are preordained by God. He calls us to pray, and he uses the means of prayer as one of the resources through which he accomplishes his purposes in our life. In this case, God's ordained that he will preserve our faith, that he will keep every believer, that he will help us in temptation, and he will cause every believer to bear good fruit. But he's also ordained that the means by which he will do that, one of those means, is the gift of prayer. God has given you, Christian, access to himself in prayer. And it brings him great delight and joy when his people run to him in prayer. You understand that? It pleases the heart of God when we pray. He calls us to pray. He calls us to, to understand our dependency upon him and to express that dependency by having a quick response to pray at all times. And so let me just say, if your theology of God's sovereignty has become a hindrance in your prayer life, you're misapplying that great truth. Because in the mind of God, the immediate and appropriate response for a person who understands that Christ is standing as our high priest at the hand of the Father is to run to him in prayer. That's the right immediate response. And so are you crushed under the weight of some pressing trial? Are you bombarded with constant temptation? Are you weary because of the experience of, of human frailty and human weakness? Then run, don't walk to your great high priest in prayer. Run to him in prayer. He stands at the right hand of the Father interceding for you as one who understands what it is to live where you live. And he's eager to help. Just as the, the old hymn says, Oh, what joy we often forfeit. What needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. But the text only gets more encouraging 
Because now he's going to go on to give us three descriptions. He's going to not only tell us that we should draw near, but he's going to tell us how to draw near. He's going to tell us how we will be received when we draw near. And he's going to tell us what the end result will be after we've drawn near. The first description is here in verse 16 where he says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. And this is our disposition in prayer. What's to be the disposition of the believer when the believer prays? Well, the the author of Hebrews says it's to be confidence. Confidence. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence. The, The word translated as confidence simply means a state of boldness and confidence. We could translate it as courage, confidence, boldness, or fearlessness. And this confidence, of course, is not a confidence earned by our own merit or self-worth. It, we don't gain confidence by looking at ourselves. As believers, we understand that we're sinners. We understand we have no business coming into the presence of God in and of ourselves. After all, it's important to understand that the ministry of Christ on our behalf in no way diminishes the holiness of God or the reverence that we're to have for God. All of that's still fully intact. God's just as holy now as he was in the Old Testament. Same God. Nothing's changed. We ought to be reverent when we go to God in prayer. But what's changed here is not the character of God. What's changed is the crucial fact that the God-man Jesus Christ has made perfect satisfaction for our sins. This is the word propitiation that we see in Romans chapter 3. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that is a satisfaction in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Again, what has fundamentally changed here in this new covenant ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a transition in the character of God. It is propitiation, perfect satisfaction of the wrath of God for our sins so that we can come freely to God on behalf of what Christ has done for us. The Christian then is to run to God in prayer with a disposition of confidence that rests not in himself but in the great high priest who stands there on our behalf. Richard Phillips says it this way, This is the key to prayer, to praying often, to praying openly, to praying boldly and freely and with gladness of heart. Here's the key. To know that we come clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, invited by his own saving ministry, purchased by his precious blood, and anticipated by his sympathetic intercession. This is the secret to lively and happy prayer. It's the theology of salvation to understand what Christ has done for us that that beckons us to pray with this kind of confidence. It is this theology that would lead Paul to say to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Pray all the time, he says. The Christian life is to be one of constant, regular communication with the Lord. He says, make everything a matter of prayer. 
Express your joys. Ask for for comfort in the midst of trial. Ask for strength in the battle with temptation. But pray. If you think about it, there's always something to be grateful for. There's always something to depend on God for. There's always a temptation to ask for God's strength to help with. And so, with that in mind, how can we not pray without ceasing? In the same vein, Paul would go on to tell the Colossians in Colossians 4.2, devote yourselves to prayer. This kind of fervent, continual prayer comes as the natural result of realizing that we're welcomed by God in Christ and can therefore come to Him not only reverently, but confidently. Think of it this way. You remember that Queen Esther was extremely nervous to enter into the presence of the king to intercede on behalf of her people because the king had a policy that if you came to him without being summoned, the the penalty for that was death. And the only way that a person could escape that penalty is if in coming to him, the, the king extended to you his scepter, which was a sign that you were welcome in his presence. What we as Christians have to understand is that for us, As those who've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ, the scepter of welcome is always extended. It's always extended to us. God wants us to come to him in prayer, and he wants us to come every day, all day, with a disposition of confidence. If you're struggling under the weight of weakness, trial, or sin, let me ask you, are you praying? Are you praying? You know, so often, we turn to every other resource before we turn to prayer. We'll get on the phone and call a friend. We'll purchase books on the topic. We'll search for sermons on someone that's preached on this thing that we're dealing with. We'll even send out prayer requests to others without ever having prayed ourselves. But all of that's backwards. Not that we can't do those things, but do those things After and as you are praying, not instead of. Let us draw near with confidence. Don't forfeit this sweet privilege that was purchased for you at so high a cost. The very cost of the blood of the one who stands there on your behalf at the right hand of the Father. But perhaps you're still uneasy about this word confidence. Once we come to Christ and as we mature in Christ, we're more comfortable thinking on the fact that we're sinners, God is holy, and we don't deserve anything from him. All that's true, and that ought to be our humble disposition. But sometimes we can take that so far that words like coming to him with confidence can can feel a little weird, like like clothes that don't quite fit. Maybe it feels irreverent to you to think about coming to God into his presence with confidence. Well, if that's the case... We conquer that by understanding not only what our disposition is to be in prayer, but by understanding what God's disposition is in prayer. And that's description number two. God's disposition in prayer. Notice in verse 16 where it is that we're called to go near. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. To the throne of grace. Of grace. With this description, the author begins to bear in mind the amazing truth that, that when you pray, that prayer makes its way through Christ to the very throne of God. 
This is a reminder, by the way, that, that God has not in any way given up his sovereign rule. He still sits there on a throne. It comes before a real throne. This is a picture of God's rule. He's still on the throne. He's still the sovereign creator, still the king over all. But the amazing truth highlighted here is that the throne of God, which represents his rule, is characterized by a disposition of grace. Grace. This is one of the important reasons why under the old covenant, God insisted that people remain separate from his presence. It wasn't because he he didn't intend all along to draw them near through his son. It was to highlight the fact that if we were ever to come near to him, it would have to be on the basis of grace. It, It could never be on the grace or on the basis of our own merit. It would never happen. It had to be God extending grace to us based on the merit of another who took our place. And that, that, that sacrificial system made that very, very clear. But now here the author is making very, very clear that that's already happened. And so now the, the throne of God, when we come near to him, is characterized by grace. Now in context, the word grace means a, a beneficent disposition towards someone. So don't miss the implication. What he's saying is because of the perfect satisfaction of his wrath accomplished by his son, that the default position of God towards his people when they come is grace. That's the default position of God. But our flesh tempts us constantly to misrepresent the disposition of God towards us, doesn't it? In our minds, we have a battle sometimes. It's difficult for us to think that God is really serious when he says that we're to draw near. You know, what happens as you grow in Christ is this strange phenomenon. Have you experienced this where, by God's grace, you're actually growing in holiness? If you look back over the course of your Christian life, you say, you know what, by God's grace, I'm here, I used to be here, I've seen growth, and yet that growth comes with a heightened sensitivity to sin. It's like the, the holier you get in actuality by God's grace, the more sensitive you are to sin. So two things happen. On the one hand, you're actually more righteous than you used to be, but your conscience is now more sensitive than it used to be, so you actually feel more sinful than you did before. This happens to us. And what happens then is we get mixed up because our minds begin to think, how can I go back to him again? How can I possibly go back and ask again for him to have grace and patience with me for that same thing? Can I really go with confidence? The author says that if you're in Christ... Christ stands there at the right hand of the Father so that he beckons you to come constantly, freely, with confidence, with a disposition of grace towards you. See, it's the disposition of God towards us that is the ultimate motivation for us to come to him. We find confidence when we look at his character and not ours If you look to yourself and your own performance to bolster your confidence, then you will never pray. But if you look to the gracious character of God, whose disposition towards you is grace that's been purchased by the blood of his own son, then you will throw yourself at his feet over and over again from the time you lift your head to the time it hits the pillow again at night. 
If your prayer life is suffering this morning, then perhaps you're looking at yourself when you ought to be looking at your Savior. God doesn't want you to try and fix your mess on your own to clean yourself up and then come into his presence. He wants you to understand that you can't fix yourself. You need him, so run to him for strength and for grace and for mercy. But if you're still finding it hard to be motivated at this thought of coming into the presence of God in this way, there's a third description here, and that's God's response to prayer. God's response to prayer. This is the end of verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It begins here with those words, so that, indicating there's a result here, there's a reason, something's going to happen when we draw near to God in this way. And here's the reason, so that we may receive mercy and find grace. Receive mercy and find grace. You know, mercy and grace are words that are often used interchangeably in the scripture. They are nearly synonymous, but there, there is a nuance of difference between them, and particularly when they're used together like this. The author is highlighting two, two sides of the same coin, in a sense. And, and most commentators agree that in this particular context, when the author says that we're going to come and receive mercy and find grace, this is what he means. Mercy here likely refers to God's forgiveness for past sin. We, we, we've sinned, we need forgiveness, and so we come to him looking for mercy to be forgiven that sin. Grace in this context seems to refer to coming to God for present and future strength in the pursuit of obedience. And if you think about it, this makes perfect sense because this is our daily life as Christians. At least it ought to be. We we go throughout the day and, and not a single day goes by that we don't commit sin. We sin every day. By God's grace, we're growing in holiness. We're not, we're not who we used to be, but we fully understand that we're not yet fully made perfect. And so when we sin, we desperately need God's forgiveness. And what the author is saying here is that you can rest assured that you will have it. That because of what Christ has done, you can come confidently, confidently into the presence of God seeking mercy and you will find it. But it's important that we pause here just for a moment because I need to explain the difference in why the believer needs to come back to God for forgiveness and why an unbeliever needs to come to God for forgiveness because those are two different things. We're talking about two different things when we say that. Let me address unbelievers for just a moment. If you're here this morning, you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ, then understand that right now in your current state, you relate to God as your creator and as your judge. Creator and judge. And the Bible says that every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We read that from Romans 3 earlier. Because of that sin, because we've rebelled against God, it not only puts distance between us, the Bible says we're dead in our sins and that we deserve his wrath, his punishment for our sin which the Bible outlines as eternity separated from him in hell. 
But the Bible also says that God is gracious and he is kind and long-suffering. And he sent his perfect son to live a perfect life, to die sacrificially on the cross for our sins and to rise again from the grave. So that now grace is extended to you in Christ if you will turn from your sins and repentance, putting your faith in Jesus alone as your only hope of salvation. The Bible says you will indeed be forgiven and saved and adopted into his spiritual family. That is the gospel. And so the only way to go from relating to God as creator and judge to relating to God as your spiritual father is by repentance and faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we say that you need to come to God and receive forgiveness and mercy, what we're saying is you need to come and do that for the first time to be made right with God, to have a complete transition in which he makes you new and applies to you the righteousness of Christ and your sin to Christ. But for the believer, we mean something different. If you're a believer this morning, there's a crucial difference when he says that we've got to continually be coming in need of mercy. I want to be careful that we're not confused because what he's not saying is that our justification somehow is constantly at stake, that we're continually coming back and revisiting this issue of being made right with God. The Bible's clear that when you repent and believe in the gospel, you are saved. You're adopted into the family of God. You are justified, which means you are declared righteous on the basis of what Christ has done. And that's done. That, we're never revisiting that again. We're not constantly being brought back into the courtroom of God, if you will. That court case has been done, and it's been settled because of what Christ has done. So now, as believers, we relate to God as not only our creator, but as our father. He sees us as his spiritual children. And just like with you and your own kids or your own parents, when a son sins against his father, he doesn't stop being a son, right? That relationship is still there. He will always be the son of that father, but it does put distance in that relationship. And so the son coming back and, and, and repenting, if you will, to the father, asking for forgiveness, restores the intimacy of that relationship, the closeness of that relationship. But the relationship itself is never in question. That's how we live our lives. God is now our spiritual, our heavenly father. We are his. He holds us in his hand. And yet when we sin, it, it, puts, a, it puts distance. It puts distance in that intimate relationship that we have with him. And so when the text says that we're to draw near in confidence, seeking this mercy, that's what we're talking about. We sin against the Lord, never endangering our justification, but, but there's that, that sense of distance in the intimacy with God, and we come back confessing that sin, we receive his mercy, and that intimacy is again restored. That's the call here for the Christian and what it means to come regularly seeking his mercy. Having understood that then, the only thing left to do is run to him. Run to him. Asking for that mercy. If you're a believer here this morning and you know that you're in Christ, but, but there's some sin in your heart or your life, don't stay there. Turn even now in your heart of hearts. Run back to the Lord for mercy and you will find it. But understand that the text doesn't stop there. Our life in relationship with God is not just a matter of we go out and we sin and we come back and get mercy and we go out and we sin and we come back and get mercy. That, that happens. That's, that is a daily reality, but it's more than that because that's not God's desire. That's not the sum total of God's desires for our relationship. Our relationship with him is intended by his grace 
to bring us progressively into the character of Christ. So that we are, while we're still sinners and still need mercy, there's actual growth in holiness. And that brings us to this second word. Not only do we receive mercy, but we come to find grace. We come to find grace. And that grace here in this context refers to the the spiritual strength. This is the help, okay? When we said that he sympathizes with our weaknesses, meaning he's eager to help, that is this grace. He's eager to offer to us the grace that we need today and for the future that we might hold fast to the faith and walk in the newness of life that he's given to us. And the reason that we know that's what grace means here in this context is because of what he says at the end of the verse. He says, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Find grace to help in time of need. This is real help. This is the help of a sympathizing Savior who knows what it is to be fully man and what it is to live in perfection as a man. He's ready to offer us his grace in the form of sustaining grace that gives us help to run the race, spiritual strength. Paul speaks of this help and temptation in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, when he says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you'll be able to endure it. And so we access this help of God, the strength of God to help us in temptation, to help us in our human weakness by running to him in prayer. Prayer is one of our greatest weapons in the battle with temptation. Of course, we war against our flesh by turning our minds to truth. We talk about that all the time, putting off, renewing our mind and putting on the truth. In addition to that, we run to God in constant prayer, asking for his help. But there's something else here that's really important. Look back at the exact wording. That we're going to find help in time of need, it says. Now, now the Greek text states that a little bit differently. We had to add some words in English to make this work. But in the Greek text, it says something more like this. That we may find timely help or suitable help. The emphasis in the Greek language includes not only the idea of Christ giving us help, but of his giving help at exactly the right time. Exactly the right time. The word timely in the the Greek word means this. It's time that is considered a favorable occasion for some event or circumstance. It's well-timed. It's suitable. This is important for us to understand because what the text is saying is that we come to God asking for help, and he doesn't just give us help, he gives us timely help. He gives us the exact help that we need at the exact moment that we need it. And that's really important for us to understand because so often when we come to God in prayer, we come to God dictating the exact kind of help we want and exactly when we want it, don't we? We don't just come asking for help. We come saying, God, I want you to help me by doing such and such, and I'd really like it if that happened at such and such a time. That's our temptation is to come before the Lord. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong to be specific in our prayers. That's not wrong. 
But theologically, we need to understand that God is much bigger than that. The problem is we don't actually know what help we need or when we really need it. We think we do. We feel as though we do. But think of it this way. I, I was trying to illustrate this in my own mind earlier today. and I think of it this way. You know, We see life compared, compared to how God sees life. We see life like we're looking through a straw. That's our field of vision at best, where, where God sees the entirety of eternity laid out before him, right? And we're looking at it through a straw. And so we fixate on something through that straw and say, okay, that's what I need right there, that, that little piece. But, but God sees the whole picture. He says, no, that, that's not actually what you need. You need this. You just don't know that. But I'm good, and I'm going to actually give you what you need when you need it even though it's different than what you just asked for. You understand? It's timely help. It's suitable help. It's the real help that you need. And that's why God is so good. His, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. That is, he does what is exactly best for his people. And the way he defines best is perhaps different than the way we define best. Because the way that God defines best is by what is most in promotion of his glory what will advance his kingdom, and what is best for your spiritual good. That is, when God seeks to do you good, he seeks to do you the best kind of good, and that is to make you more like his son. And so when you come asking for help, come with humility, saying, God, it seems to me through, through the straw that I'm looking at that this would be best, but God, your will be done and not mine. Help me in the way that is truly best at the right time, and strengthen me to hold on until that time comes. Think of it this way. You'll remember Joseph. If you're doing your Bible read through, we just finished Genesis and reading about Joseph. And, you know, Joseph was falsely accused of impropriety with Potiphar's wife. He's thrown into prison for something he didn't do, an unjust prison sentence. And I think we can all agree that being falsely imprisoned is a trial. I think we would all feel that we we're in a trial if we are falsely imprisoned. And our natural reaction would be to pray what? God, get me out of prison, right? This, this is not just. And, and you would have a case. It was not just. It was absolutely unjust for Joseph to be thrown in prison for something he didn't do. But what struck me this go around as I read back through Genesis 39 is we see God's perspective on what's really helpful and what is giving us kindness in the midst of trials. Look at Genesis 39, verses 20 to 23. It says, So Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in jail. Verse 21, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. Listen to that. From God's perspective, he extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not su supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Notice that God extended kindness and favor to Joseph, but he left him in prison. He left him in prison. God showed him the kindness of strengthening him, and by causing him to thrive in the midst of his trial, he didn't pull him out of it. Not immediately. 
not for years. That's an encouragement to us not to grow weary in praying and not to try to dictate our own timeline and our own outcome as we experience the trials of life. Instead, we're simply to trust the great high priest who really understands your weaknesses, who really understands experientially what it is to go through the kinds of things you're going through, and who is committed to helping you in the best way, in the right way, at the right time. You know, that's why so often when God does allow us to make it to the other end of a trial, and we actually are pulled out of that trial, and we begin to analyze on the other end all that God did, we realize that God did something way more than what we would have done. He did something way better than what we were praying, because that's who God is. It causes us to marvel at the perfection of his plan. So, hold on to these truths, Christian. If God has you in the midst of trial or you're in temptation constantly, hold on to your Savior, the great high priest. Run to him in prayer, remembering that you're welcome there, that his throne is characterized by grace towards you, and that our great high priest is eager to offer to you his timely help. The application here this morning is just to consider the state of your prayer life. Consider the state of your prayer life. How regularly do you draw near to God in prayer? Is your disposition in prayer confidence? Do you draw near to, to ask for forgiveness of past failures, but also asking for strength for today and for tomorrow? Do you judge God's faithfulness based on whether or not he brings your trial or temptation to an end or by how graciously he strengthens you to remain faithful in and through it? Are you trying to dictate the help that you want from God, that you're convinced you need from God, or are you willing to pray and trust that his help, both in manner and timing, are better? I hope after studying this that you take heart, Christian. If you're in Christ, your Savior sees you. He understands you. He understands what you're going through. And he's committed to helping you. Just keep praying. Keep trusting. Keep walking in obedience to him. And recognize what a gift we have in this great high priest who stands to intercede for us.